Father, we are so thankful we are here. We are thankful, Father, for the provision of this building, for the way, Father, you have brought men and women into, the, into this fellowship, into being a part of what we do, supporting it with their time and their talents and their funds. Father, all of those things are necessary, and you brought them together. Thank you. Thank you, Father, that you've made us a part of this. Thank you, Father, that even as we go on two and a half years of meeting, we would never take for granted that we are here each Sunday, that we would see each Sunday as the gift that it is, that uh, we could be in many other places, Father. We could be in many other churches. We may be in a place, Father, where there is no church, as many in the world have experienced. But instead, Father, you've given us the blessing of a small gathering, a gathering devoted to your word, to worshiping in spirit and truth, and so, Father, we come, we come in that obedience to put you first and to put your word first. Father, you've been so good to bless us this week. I know for each of us there's no doubt many things we could point to as blessing, as proof that you keep your promise to provide and to watch out, even in just the weather. Father, we've had such a glorious time in the weather lately. We thank you, Father, for that. We pray perhaps for rain as well, because, Father, we need that as well. And you provided, Father, in many other ways. We lift those up in thanks. And now, Father, as we go into your word, we seek your spirit. We know he is in us, as you promise, and we know he is with us, as you promise he will when we gather in your name. And so, Father, we ask that he be active, that he take the word as the sword of the spirit, and he uses it, Father, to cut away those things that are not good for us, Father, to convict us of our sin, to drive us, Father, away from those things the flesh desires, and at the same time, Father, to point us toward the truth to sharpen us, Father, to sharpen us as only the Word can. And then let it be, Father, the thing that would change us and mold us according to your image. Let it be the thing that draws us, Father, to others in the world who don't know you so that we might be a light to them. And all the good that you may do through your Word, Father, we give you thanks and we give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, open up with me to Luke chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, there are some on the back table. They're there for your benefit. Feel free to... Drop back there real quickly and grab one if you need one. Or if you see a neighbor without one, maybe you grab one for them as well. We want to go through Luke verse by verse as we've been doing up to this point. We're now in chapter 8 near the, the last part of the chapter. We'll be finishing chapter 8 today, as I said. So far in this chapter, if you've been with us, we've seen Jesus in the last segment we studied last week, leaving the region of Grassinus. This is the region, or uh, he entered the region of Grassinus, having left Capernaum. Imagine the Sea of Galilee, if you will, in your mind, this teardrop-shaped body of water on the northwest corner is where Capernaum is. That's where Jesus has largely been centered in his ministry up till now. He's now moved. Last week we saw him move across the water in the boat with the disciples and land on the opposite side, on the southeast corner of that body of water, the area we know as Grassinus. And that area is an area he had not been in previously. He goes into that region, as you remember, he finds the demon-possessed man, the man who has so many demons inside him, they call themselves legion. And he freed the man from those demons. If you also remember last week, the town that was right near this region that he's in, the town nearby, was so uh, essentially scared by Jesus' miracle, they were actually more worried about him than they were about the man that he freed the demons from. And they asked him to leave. We also remember the local herdsmen had lost all their pigs as a result of the exorcism that, that Christ had acted on that man. So that probably contributed to their dislike of Jesus. And in any event, they react very differently to him than the people on the northwest side of the body of water, on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee, have been reacting to Jesus. Unlike them, they reject him. And they say, please leave. 
Very different than the reaction he's been seeing from the huge crowds he attracts up in Capernaum. I also imagine this whole experience that Jesus had with his disciples was a a pretty good learning experience for them. Remember, part of what he's doing here is he's moving through the region teaching, proclaiming the good news, proclaiming himself as the Messiah, yes, but it's also for the effect of training the disciples. Remember, Jesus knows this ministry that he's about to engage in is not going to end well, so to speak. It ends wonderfully if you believe in him as your Messiah because his death on the cross saves us. But in earthly terms, he is not going to be brought into his glory during his first coming. So he's not fooled by the crowds. He knows they're temporary. He knows his ministry is not going to be to be placed on the seat of David during this first coming. So his real purpose, his, if you might put it, his long-term purpose beyond the death on the cross is to teach the disciples how to found the early church, to prepare them for the ministry that will follow his death. So the teaching experience that comes out of this event he had down in Grassinus is designed to show them that they're going to have a hit-and-miss response to the ministry of, of the gospel message. Sometimes you'll have crowds like you do in Capernaum, but other times you're going to have people reject you just like the people in this region did. And so as Jesus was asked to leave, he obeys, he answers their request. And in Luke chapter 8, verse 40, we'll pick up today with the next series of events in this chapter. Let's look at verse 40. As Jesus returned, the people welcomed him, for they had all been waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus. He was an official of the synagogue, and he fell at Jesus' feet and began to implore him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years old, and she was dying. But as he went, the crowds were pressing against him. And a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and could not be healed by anyone came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. And immediately her hemorrhage stopped. We'll stop there for a moment. Let's take a moment to look at what we understand going on so far. This passage we're going to read now in not just what we've read, but what goes all the way to the end of chapter 8 is actually a miracle within a miracle. It's the only such example in the whole gospel message of all the gospels. It's the only time we see the writer explaining a miracle and then in the midst of explaining it stops, explains another miracle and then eventually comes back to the first and finishes. That's what we're going to see today as we finish out chapter 8. And it's going to be interesting for us to examine why it was presented in this way. Because after all, the writer could have very easily described the miracle with the woman and then described the miracle with the synagogue official's daughter as separate incidents. There's no necessity to intertwine them the way they've been intertwined. Unless, of course, there's some point about why they need to be intertwined. So we want to look for that reason. Let's look at what we've just learned so far. We have this official, as the text tells us, an official of the synagogue. His name is Jairus. And as an official in the synagogue, we're really not talking here about a priest. Rather, we're talking more about a minister or a caretaker who has his employment, essentially, in the local gathering place for Jewish worship, in the local synagogue. So he's not a priest, but he has some official duties within the synagogue. He also has, as the text tells us, a 12-year-old daughter. Now, this 12-year-old daughter is apparently near death. We don't know why, but that's obviously not important. It's just the fact that she's going to die, and the father is sure of it. So he's looking for help from any source. He's heard of Jesus, and Jesus is a healing ability. So he's come to Jesus and asked him to heal her. You can imagine that his request of Jesus to heal his daughter is something of evidence that he has faith in Jesus. But I don't want you to make that conclusion just yet. Because it's on the one hand pretty common for men and women to surround Jesus in this day and ask for healing. That's why he has a large crowd. They're not there just for the entertainment. They think he can do something for them. So 
the fact that he would come to Jesus for healing in and of itself is not all by itself proof of faith in Jesus as the Messiah. We don't know to what degree Jairus had faith in Jesus, except maybe just this last-minute desperation hope that the man could heal his daughter. That's all we can tell, at least at this point in the text. Now, before Jesus makes his way to the house, he's apparently made uh, some kind of statement to the man that says, okay, I'll come heal your daughter, and he's on his way, and that's pretty obvious. As he's moving to the home, though, we see this experience now with the woman in the crowd. This is that second miracle that takes place in between. It's interesting as you look at all three of the synoptic gospels, and if you don't know what I mean, synoptic gospels refer to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those three gospels, because they're so similar, are called synoptic. In all three, they record these two miracles intertwined. It's not just Luke who does this. And so we want to begin to look at what's the relationship between the two. Let's begin by trying to understand what goes on with this woman. We see the woman as described as hemorrhaging for 12 years. And what scripture really means by that is we're talking about a woman who is bleeding and bleeding internally in a way that is common for women. But what is uncommon here, of course, is that she's doing it continuously for 12 years. And before we examine the significance of that, I want you to have in your mind a picture of what she's doing in the moment. I want you to see the scene that Scripture plays out for us. We hear that Jesus is in a dense crowd. Now, he's, it's essentially like if you've ever seen kids play soccer, they call it beehive soccer. You, know, you ever heard that term? The really, really young kids who go out and play soccer, the reason they call it beehive soccer is that it's basically this little hive of little boys and girls that just move wherever the ball goes like this. around. If you've had kids in soccer, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? They don't move around the field independently. They all go to the ball, and then they just move like this around the ball. It's beehive soccer. And until they get a little older and realize, well, that's not exactly the best way to play the game, they just hovel, you know, get really close to the ball and bump into each other, and it like, looks more like rugby than it does soccer. That's what you should imagine here. You have people jostling and fighting and bumping and pushing and trying to be right next to Jesus in competition with everyone else around him. And he's, meanwhile, is trying to move through the crowd and move to this house. No doubt the disciples are around him trying to protect him, maybe, trying to keep people at distance, maybe. I mean, they're doing what they can to help their teacher. And this crowd is going to be noisy. It's going to be yelling. This is, a, this is like Bedlam on the move, on the way to Jairus' house. Somewhere from behind Jesus, then, you have this woman. Now, this woman sees Jesus, and she wants to approach him, but she's got to contend with this crowd. She's got the same problem anyone else would have in trying to get near Jesus. Scripture says she's been hemorrhaging for 12 years, as I said. In Jewish culture, this was a big deal for her personally. It meant she was defiled. She was unclean under the law. Leviticus 15 gave the Jews some very strict rules for how to contend with a woman who was bleeding, both inside her normal period during each month, but also if she were bleeding outside the normal time, there were special rules for that circumstance. That's how specific Leviticus 15 was. She would be considered unclean. Everything she touched would be considered unclean. Everything she wore would be considered unclean. Her bed sheets were considered unclean. Her garments. And anyone who touched any of those things, they themselves became unclean. And there was a ritual for cleansing if you became unclean. And so, if you were a Jew in society and you knew of a woman who had this condition, you stayed away from her. She couldn't have any kind of marital relations. She couldn't have any kind of normal relations with anybody. For 12 years now, this woman has been a pariah. I mean, it's, it's like the old days of kids in, in, in the playground with girls have cooties and guys won't go near them. That whole silly game the kids play at that age. Bring it to a grown-up context and play it for real for 12 years. 
And imagine what she must have felt like in that culture. Imagine how, how desperate she must have been to be healed. Mark and Matthew, when they describe the same account, they talk about how she spent all her money on doctors trying to heal her without any success. It's interesting. Luke, the doctor, he leaves out that detail, making you wonder if perhaps he's a little sensitive to the thought that the doctors couldn't heal her. That's just me. But, but she's a pariah. She's a pariah in this community. Now, the woman begins to approach Jesus, and she does it without announcing herself. And this is important. She probably did it for two reasons. First, she's going to assume that any rabbi, any man of of God, any holy man, is not going to be willing to touch her or even speak to her because of the rules of Leviticus 15. So she's really hiding herself in the sense of not letting on about her condition for fear that if she came before Jesus and said, I've been bleeding for 12 years, please heal me. I mean, just like Jairus did, right? Jairus went up there and said, I've got a daughter who's dying, please heal my daughter. Why didn't the woman just come up and tell Jesus about her condition and ask to be healed? Because she's afraid that if she did, she wouldn't get his attention. She wouldn't be allowed to even be in the crowd. In fact, she probably believes she needs to come secretly to Jesus because if she touched him with him knowing it, she'd be in trouble. She wouldn't get healed. She needed to touch him without him knowing it. And the second reason is really just an extension of the first. The second reason she's coming secretly is if the crowd knew of her condition... They're not going to let her get close because they don't want to be defiled. She'd, she'd have an even more difficult time approaching Jesus if the crowd knew of her condition. So she's trying to be invisible. She's trying to keep her condition secret. Maybe the more important question we should ask, though, at this point is, why did the woman want to touch Jesus? Why did she think that was the secret? You notice that's the whole point. Remember, there were throngs of people all around Jesus. They're all touching him. It's not as though touching Jesus was something that only happened for a few people. They're all touching him. And he was being touched on all sides by people who desired healing themselves. And yet we know from the text that these people are not being healed when they touch Jesus. You hear what I'm saying? He's surrounded by people who all want the same thing she wants. They're all touching Jesus, which is what she wants to do. None of them are being healed just by that alone. Why does she think if she comes up from behind him and touches him, she'll be healed? It seems very superstitious, doesn't it? It seems nonsensical if you consider what's going on around her. Now, we know Jesus healed people from time to time, but he didn't do it on the basis of strictly being touched, at least not in anything we've read up to this point. So it's it's important to recognize she has a very unique idea. She has a a unique idea different than the people around her have, which is an assurance in her own mind that if she approaches Jesus and touches him, she'll be healed. I need to take you through some scripture, though, to explain to you why she thought that. Because probably the key point of the message at this point is why she thought it was important to touch Jesus. Let's begin by understanding the clothes that are typically worn by a rabbi. Typically, men wore two garments. They had an under tunic, a light, almost, you might consider it like underwear today, a very light undergarment tunic. And then on top of that, they had a heavier outer garment. And this is called a tallet. It's still worn today by Jewish men in Orthodox circles. They sometimes call it a prayer shawl, but it's a long overgarment that's heavier and would go all the way to the ground. At the corners of the tallet are tassels. These tassels are really just long uh, stretches of knotted thread. They're called sithayot, sithayot in the Hebrew. Now, men would put these tassels all around the bottom of their prayer shawl because That was commanded to them by God in the Torah. In fact, they would take these tassels and they would tie five knots in each tassel. These five knots represented the five books 
of the Torah, the, Genesis, the books of Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. In fact, I want you to go with me just for a moment to Numbers chapter 15. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 15. It's the fourth book of the Bible in the Old Testament. We're going to look at chapter 15, verse 37. And I'm going to read about four verses, and then we're going to understand what God is doing in producing this part of the uniform, if you will, the part of the clothing that they wore. Verse 37, the Lord also spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and tell them that they shall make for themselves tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations, and that they shall put on the tassel of each corner a blue, a cord of blue. It shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord so as to do them and not follow after your own heart and your own eyes after which you played the harlot, so that you may remember to do all my commandments and be holy to your God. So there's the commandment that was given to the nation of Israel telling men to put these tassels, these cords of thread on the bottom of their tunic. Over time, in the culture of the Jewish nation, these tassels became very important to Jewish society. They were actually considered a part of your reputation, a part of your personality. If you were, for example, to remove the hem of a man's garment, to cut off these tassels from his garment, it would be considered an act of humiliation. They found tablets in Mesopotamia, ancient tablets that had the impression of a man's tassels in the clay tablet in place of his signature. So a man could sign a document by letting them take an impression of his tassels. That's how important they were. A man could divorce a woman by cutting off her tassels from her, the hem of her tunic, because these were worn by women as well. In fact, you might remember in 1 Samuel, in chapter 24, when Saul is pursuing David and trying to kill him, and they're out in the wilderness, and David comes upon Saul in a cave. And if you know the story, Saul has gone in to relieve himself in the cave. And uh, David sneaks up from behind and he cuts off the tassels, the hem of Saul's robe. And then later shows Saul that he's cut off his tassels. Now, it wasn't just to show Saul that, he, that David had mercy on him when he could have killed him in that vulnerable moment. It was also an act of humiliation to remove the tassels off of Saul's robe. That's the significance the Jewish culture had with these. Now, by the time Jesus came along in his day, the tasseled hem of the talit had come to represent status and importance in that culture. Ordinary people would only wear their talit on special occasions. But Pharisees had taken to wearing them all the time. The Pharisees loved to wear their tunics with their tassels and show them off. In fact, the Pharisees had taken this practice even farther. If you know anything about Pharisees, this is exactly what you'd expect of them. They'd come to the point now where they were actually increasing the length of these tassels as a sign of piety. The longer my tassels are, the more pious I am, the more, religious, the more religious I am than you. Look how long my tassels are. You see the absurdity of it, right? It was an outward show of religiosity. In Matthew 23, chapter 23, verse 2, you hear this. The scribes and Pharisees, this is Jesus talking, the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders. And they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. Now listen to what he says here. They broaden their phylacteries and they lengthen the tassels of their garments. That's Christ referring to how the, the Pharisees are doing everything for show. Phylacteries, by the way, were little boxes that they used to tie to their hair 
and they would hang them around their head. And inside the boxes were little snippets of scripture. And it was a sign of how they were keeping the word near to them. This is actually because of something God gave them as well in Exodus in the Old Testament. But, of course, they had taken to making the, broadening their phylacteries. They had taken to making the boxes bigger and bigger. How absurd that looked. It's like the, 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 the Australians who wear things to, to the brim of their hat to keep the flies away. So every time they moved, they had these little things dangling from their head. That was scriptural, but the way they were doing it was not. Similarly with the tassels, they lengthened them to make to kind of show off. All right, well, that's the first thing you need to understand. These tassels were important. They were associated with status. Jesus obviously wore them also. But unlike the Pharisees, he would have worn them in the right way. Second piece you need to understand, out of Malachi, I want you to look at Malachi 4, the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, right before Matthew. Look at chapter 4 of Malachi, verse 1. Verse 1 of chapter 4, we hear this, For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaffed, and that day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. This is a little bit difficult verse, but it's not that hard once you begin to get the sense of it. We begin, and if you look closely, particularly at verse 2, you see, first of all, a description called the sun of righteousness. Now, interestingly, the word sun there is not the sun we normally hear, right? It's not S-O-N, it's S-U-N. And that is actually the correct word. In Hebrew, the word is shemesh, and it means the sun that's in the heavens. The fact that sun and sun sound alike in the English is purely coincidental. In the Hebrew, they're very different. So it wasn't meant to be a play on words in the Hebrew. It was meant to mean sun like the sun we see in the sky. But it is still euphemistic. It is still meaning the Messiah because of the rising, the idea of something that rises to glory. So in that sense, it is still a picture of the Messiah. We can tell that even more fully by the context of Malachi. The whole context of the book, particularly chapter 4, is prophetic, looking forward to the Messiah's coming in glory. Now, the second interesting part of that reference is to this healing in his wings. Healing in his wings. Wings is a euphemistic way of describing the tassels on a man's garment. In fact, the word translated corner, remember in Numbers 15 when we read a minute ago in Numbers that we would put these tassels on the corners of your garment? The word corner in the Hebrew back in chapter 15 is the same word here as wings. It means wing, corner, wing of your, of your garment. So when we hear there's healing in his wings, Scripture is telling us out of Malachi that the prophecy of the Messiah included this fact that when he came, he would have in his tassels the power to heal. And so the Jewish nation had grown up with the understanding that the Messiah, whoever he was and whenever he came, would have the power to heal in the tassels on his garment. So now here, back in Luke 8, we have this woman who's quietly approaching the Messiah. And as she walks in this dense crowd, she's trying to get through just far enough that she can touch the tassels on the hem of his garment. Matthew 9.20 says this about the same moment. And a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. And this is what Matthew adds. For she was saying to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will get well. Clearly, this woman is thinking about the prophecy in Malachi. Clearly, she's decided that he is the Messiah. 
And therefore, if I touch his hem, I will be healed. She's not thinking this because all men who have tassels can heal. Clearly, that's not scriptural and nor is it the tradition. It was simply that it be the Messiah and then it would be capable of healing. Then in Luke 8, 45, Jesus, having been touched by the woman and sensing that she's been healed, he says this. Jesus said, who is the one who touched me? And while they were all denying it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing in on you. And Jesus said, someone did touch me, for I was aware that power had gone out of me. When the woman saw that she had not escaped notice, she came trembling and fell down before him and declared in the presence of all the people the reason why she had touched him and how she had been healed immediately. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And you notice I was smiling. I don't know if you can get through this passage without a little chuckle because the whole moment just seems so... On the one hand, absurd, but yet on the other hand, it's so much like what we experience in our own life, right? The kids in the back of the car, he's touching me. That, it, it had that feel to me of like, well, so what? You know, there's a little of that in this. Don't you get that sense from the apostles? They're like, Jesus, they're all touching you. I mean, you've been, touched, you've been nothing but touched for the last 20 minutes as we move through this crowd. What do you mean you've been touched? It's almost absurd. And he says, no, somebody touched me and was healed. And, and that must have kind of quieted the crowd for a moment. Maybe even they started to step back because you notice they're denying it. It says there, the people were saying, you know, no, they were all denying it. Which is really, isn't that funny? Here's people that have been pressing and touching Jesus for the last however long. He finally says, someone's touching me, which is obvious, and now they deny it. They're scared. They're not sure what he's worried about. And so you have to kind of picture maybe he's standing there and the crowd is separated just enough to give him some room now because they don't know what he's concerned about. And the apostles try to tell him, you know, you've been touched by everybody. What do you expect? Why would you ask us if somebody's touched you? And that woman now realizes he's talking about her. She knows he's got to be talking about her. She knows she's been found out. You know, this is an interesting moment. If you just pause and think about it for a second, it's pretty obvious here that Jesus doesn't seem to be fully in control of his own healing power, does he? I mean, he's surprised. I don't think he's putting on an act here. I think he's surprised. I think he's walking. He says, I felt power go out from me. It's passive in the Greek tense. He's not saying, I sent power out. He's saying, I felt it leave me. Which implies, as we've been studying already through the Gospel of Luke, that though Jesus is God, no doubt, in the form of man, he purposefully, he voluntarily limited himself in what he could do and what he could know. He put himself in a place inside a body that by its nature limited his power. He became more dependent on the Holy Spirit for what he used to be able to do just as God himself already. This does not diminish him as God. It's simply a recognition of how much Jesus gave up in order to take the form of man and do what he did on the cross. And in his moment now as man, still God but now limited by his form, he's dependent on the Holy Spirit for his power to heal. We've seen that already in the Gospel. And he's dependent on the Holy Spirit and on the Father for direction. Like going out into the wilderness to be tempted, for example. And here he seems to have recognized that God the Father has used him through the Son to heal this woman, but he's not sure who and how. Or he's not, at least not sure who. And he turns around, he's trying to find out who it was. We know as the story plays out that his point is not to accuse her of anything. But as he's asking the question, she doesn't know that, right? She doesn't know what he's going to do. And so... She finally decides she has to be the one to confess and come forward. And this woman comes trembling through the crowd, we hear, and falls before Jesus. 
And she gives this public testimony. She gives a public testimony about what she did and why and what the result was. It doesn't say what the testimony is, but you can imagine it for you, for yourself. She would have come forward and said, I, I know out of the prophets that this Messiah can heal me if I only touch his tassels. And I, I'm bleeding and I knew if I told him, he wouldn't want to have anything to do with me. And I wouldn't be able to reach him. And when I did get to him and I touched him, he did heal me as the prophets said he would. It was a public testimony about Jesus being the Messiah as much as it was about how he healed her. And now I think you can better understand what Jesus meant when he said, your faith has healed you. Do you see how significant that statement is now in light of what she said? He wasn't commending her faith in the ritual. He wasn't commending her faith necessarily even in the prophets. He's commending her faith in him as the Messiah. For knowing who he was and believing it. Believing it enough that she went to that much effort to touch his hem. She proved her faith in him as the Messiah by how she behaved toward him. I find it important as I'm reading this to consider just a moment what the dramatic impact of that would have been in the moment. Here's all these people surrounding Jesus. They've all been pushing to get close to him. They all know, as they're hearing this woman's testimony, they all know in their mind they were touching him too, but they haven't been healed. Think about that. This woman snuck through just enough touch the tassel and she's healed. They hear her testimony. And they're thinking, wait a minute, I touched him a lot more than she did. I was touching him twice as much. I grabbed his arm. How come I didn't get healed? That's a dramatic moment. It makes a single point, probably better than anything we've seen in the scripture right now. The difference was not in what she did. The difference was not in how she did it. The difference was in what she believed. The only thing that mattered was who you think Jesus is. Not what you think he can do. Not what you think what power he had. Not not even if you believe necessarily all his teaching. That comes later as a function of growth in your faith. Initially, what matters is, do you believe who he was? Who he said he was? And I'll tell you today, there are just a lot of people like the ones who were in that crowd in that day pressing around Jesus. We have a lot of people today who think Jesus can make their lives wonderful. And unfortunately, many of us, if not in this room, just in the church generally, we kind of perpetuate this thinking by how we sell, quote, sell the gospel. There's a lot of people who will tell others, you know, being a Christian was the best thing I ever did. It changed my whole life. I'm so much happier now. I'm so much more successful now. I, I, all these diseases, I don't suffer from them anymore. I used to have terrible allergies. I don't have them anymore. Now, that's not a bad testimony. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we should withhold those kinds of statements. The problem comes in how we sell the gospel to somebody. If we use those statements as the basis for their belief in the gospel, then we're really creating more people like that crowd. People who say, well, that's a good idea. Let me just get close to Jesus so he can heal me. Let me just get close to Jesus so he can make me rich. It becomes a a self-centered view of Jesus as the fountain of something we want. But that's not the gospel message. So many people don't know the truth about Christ, come into churches every week, gather with other Christians, and the whole time they have hopes and expectations for what Jesus will do for them. And no one ever sat them down and said, who do you think Jesus is, by the way? That person who came 2,000 years ago, tell me who you think he is. And so many of those people, I'm afraid, would give you answers like, well, he was a great teacher, he was God's prophet, he was a man of the Lord, you know, these kind of euphemistic ways of saying anything but the truth, which is, he was God. He is God. Every bit now as he was then. 
The thing that's missing is the faith in who Jesus is, and that is the key. Do you believe who he was or not? Do you believe who he said he was or not? I want to consider now the second miracle, because as we leave this first one, as we said at the beginning, they tie together. We're now going to see, as this one concludes, the first one start up again, the one we started with, and it will conclude now as we go to the end of the chapter in verse 49. While he was still speaking, someone came from the house of the synagogue official saying, Your daughter has died. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But when Jesus heard this, he answered them. Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe and she will be made well. When he came to the house, he did not allow anyone to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the girl's father and mother. Now they were all weeping and lamenting for her. But he said, stop weeping for she has not died. She's asleep. And they began laughing at him, knowing that she had died. He, however, took her by the hand and called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned. She got up immediately. And he gave orders for something to be given, given her to eat. Her parents were amazed, but he instructed them to tell no one what had happened. So here we go. Transition out of one moment into the next. As the incident with this woman was ending, and he's still standing there with the crowd, a messenger apparently comes from the synagogue official's house and says, oh, you know, he's run maybe, and he said, oh, don't bother. You can forget the whole thing. She's already dead. Don't bother coming to my house. Now, remember, the synagogue official is probably with Jesus. He came to get Jesus in the first place. So the father was probably still at Jesus' side. So this is probably the first moment where the father himself has heard that his own daughter has died from this messenger. And so I think that's the reason Jesus says what he says. Imagine what's going through the mind of the Father. I mean, he's distraught. He's wondering if it's, you know, why did we stop with this woman with the hemorrhage thing? We may have missed our chance to come back and heal my daughter. But he had just witnessed a woman being healed by Jesus, had he not? And the point had just been made in a very obvious way to him and to the rest of the crowd that the basis for her healing was what? her faith in him as the Messiah. So here's this man now. He has the opportunity just for a moment to see the healing process take place on the basis of faith. And in the same moment, he hears his own daughter has died. Now, there's that conflict in the mind. We, we've seen that in our own lives, haven't we? We know what the book says about Christ. We know what we hear in the word out of, out of the scripture about what Jesus can do in terms of healing. And we know that God is, is good. He is desiring to take care of us as his children. That doesn't promise that he'll do everything we want. It just means we know he has the capacity to do those things. And then on the other hand, we see the events of our lives tell us it's hopeless. There's no way anything can, can happen good now. This person who's sick has got cancer. We know they all die. It's a deadly cancer. That person's going to die. What's the point? But you know God can save them if God desires. That's the moment this man's in. What's he going to believe? The report or Jesus who says, if you have faith, it's not lost. That's the God we serve. He delights in building our faith one small step at a time. And he does it by showing us small victories, maybe not our own, maybe a testimony of somebody else's victory. But he'll show us those things when he feels our faith wavering to build us up a little and hold, help us hold on to the faith that we're supposed to have in him and in his power. And he's doing that for this man right now. You know, you ought to take notice of the work God does for other people. Certainly not be jealous of it. I mean, the last thing we should do is look at a believer who's blessed by the Lord and turn around and somehow make that a negative of jealousy. 
which is sometimes what we can find ourselves doing. What we should do is what this man does in the moment, is say, okay, if God can do that for them, he's shown me that, now how am I going to put that to use in building my own faith for what I need and what I desire and what God's asked me to pray for? So Jesus moves forward with the crowd, with the Father. Presumably the Father's still hoping, against hope, that Jesus will bring his daughter back. He arrives and he's greeted, Jesus is greeted by anything but faith. He's greeted by a mocking crowd. He says, this girl is sleeping. She's not dead. And they laugh at him. Now, we know from Matthew, when you read Matthew's account here, that Jesus actually arrives and has this conversation with the crowd before he goes into the room. The way Luke tells it here, it almost sounds like he's gone into the room with just the three disciples and the parents, and then there's a comment, and then there's laughing, and it makes it sound like the people who are gathered with him in that small room are the ones laughing at his comment. That's not the way Matthew plays it out. Matthew actually shows that when he first arrived at the house, he made the comment that she's sleeping. He got a laugh from the crowd. Then he took this small group of people and went into the room. So that's really the way this played out. I don't want you to get the impression that it was the disciples or the parents who were laughing at his comment. He goes in. We hear that he's raised the girl from the dead at this point, gives her food, and everyone who sees it, of course, is amazed. You know, when Jesus said she was sleeping, he wasn't joking. And, and by the way, he wasn't speaking euphemistically. He was speaking literally. He was speaking literally out of Scripture. Jesus is saying that the death of the body is merely a period of time when the body is unavailable. It's not the end of the story. We tend to see death that way because we live in a world where death is the end of our experience with somebody. But that's not the end of that person's existence, nor will it be the last time we potentially may see them. Scripture makes it clear, no one ceases to exist eternally. No one does. You exist eternally. Jesus is, I think, simply reflecting the fact that from his perspective as God, he sees eternity. So he understands the body's just asleep. I can bring it back to life now, or I can bring it back to life at the rapture, or I can bring it back to life at the great white throne judgment. But one way or another, it's coming back to life. And when it comes back to life and the spirit is reunited with the body, it's going to come back for one of two purposes. You can come back for the glory that is yours in faith in Christ and an eternal life with him. Or you're going to come back for judgment and eternal separation. There's only two choices and everyone falls into one of those categories, one or the other. Jesus proves in this moment that he has the power of life over death, that he has the power over the body. And that he can raise people and place them back in the body. That is, by the way, something no other religion can claim. For all that other religions in the world would try to say about what they believe and what it means, no one ever has someone like Jesus raising people from the dead in a credible way with many eyewitnesses and many accounts to the fact that it happened. It is the one and primary reason why we know our faith is true. Because the one who has the power over life and death is the one who created us. And that is the one we should worship, the creator, not the creation. Those who are spiritually sick, those who are in need of healing, those who have the effect of sin in their body like we all do, those are the ones who need Jesus' healing. And healing, like the woman who had the hemorrhage, is reserved for those who believe. You see how these two work together? The man who needed to have faith in his daughter's resurrection got an opportunity to see it play out before his eyes and build his faith on the basis of having seen it happen to someone else. Likewise, that woman, her ability to be healed 
as a picture of our own spiritual healing, of coming to faith, coming to salvation, being healed from our sin, that was on the basis of faith. But what about the girl? You know, the little girl who died? Did she have to have faith to be resurrected? She was dead. When did she have an opportunity to show faith before she was resurrected? She didn't. That's the second half of the story. Our own healing, spiritually speaking, depends on our knowledge of the Word and our belief in it and our belief in Christ as the Savior. But our resurrection, that doesn't depend on anything. You will be resurrected, regardless of what you believe. And likewise, we see that proven here. This woman, this girl, her resurrection did not depend on her own faith. Her resurrection, just like yours and mine, comes regardless of our faith. The difference, as I've said, is what you'll see happen to you after your resurrection. That's what, that's what changes depending on whether or not you have faith. Scripture tells us one day every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. There is a day everyone will believe. I've said this before. I think it's a good way to put it. There's no such thing as an unbeliever. There's only not yet believers. Because one day everyone will believe Jesus is Lord. It's just a matter of when. And if you wait until after your death and resurrection to believe, it's too late. Because you will have rejected him during the time and opportunity he gave. We all seek to bear fruit by our faith. And and that's really the point of chapter 8 as we finish it. That as he taught the parable, and as he finishes the chapter now with these demonstrations of his power, we get to see that bearing fruit by our faith and our work on behalf of the kingdom of God is all about understanding who he is and then stepping out into the world to demonstrate that through our behavior, like the woman did in faith. But we must never let our good intentions and our desire to have others know the truth ever lead us to the point of watering down that message, of turning it simply into a what-do-you-get-out-of-Jesus kind of message. And in that process, take away its power. Turn it into something like a club, like a pyramid scheme, rather than what it really is, the power to save you from your sin on the basis of your faith, to be resurrected to glory, rather than to be resurrected to destruction. As we go out today and as we finish the lesson, I encourage you, ask those who you may have an opportunity to witness to, what do they believe about Jesus? In fact, I find it very interesting to ask Christians, people who call themselves Christian, what they think about Jesus. It's remarkable sometimes the kind of answers you'll get back. What a great way to witness. Have a conversation with someone who calls himself a brother or sister in the Lord. Appeal to them on that basis. Hey, I'm a brother in the Lord too. Where do you go to church? Oh, that's great. By the way, if somebody came up and asked you who Jesus was, what would you tell them? You'd be interested to see what kind of responses you'll get sometimes from that. And if you don't get the right response, that little switch in your brain ought to click and you ought to start thinking, what can I do to bring the gospel to this person so that they'll be Christian in fact rather than just in name? Because there are many like that. But for those in here who may not know the Lord or for whatever reason may have refused to believe he is who he said he is or those listening later, let me just remind you, believing in who he is is the only thing that matters. It's not a nice to have and we need to be clear as we teach the gospel message. Reject Christ, you reject life. You reject salvation. Believe in him and nothing else matters. Knowing the doctrines of the book, that's good. Being involved in your fellowship, giving of yourself, serving in other ways, those are great things and they have benefit. But they're not what saves you. Just knowledge of who he is and a trust in him for who he is will save you. 
One day we're going to stand before him. We're going to confess him. And on that day, it'll be too late for his mercy. But for those who believe, it will be a day of glory. I look forward to seeing all of you there with me. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we end today. And next week, as we return, we'll be in chapter 9. Father, sometimes it's so easy as we go into the gospel message to see what your son Christ was doing and to understand his miracles and his power and to begin to trust and rely in that power rather than in faith. Because, Father, your word tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please you. We might strive to work and live like Christ. We might strive to be at church every Sunday. We might give of our money. We might give of our time. But, Father, none of those things count for anything in your mind and in your plan for salvation if they are not preceded by and based in and rested upon faith that your Son was your Son, that Jesus was our Lord and Savior. I pray, Father, that more than anything else, the teaching we do here would bring that message to the hearts of those who hear it. And that if there would be anyone, Father, who by the power of the Holy Spirit has felt a conviction of their sin, who understands they cannot ensure their own way to heaven. They're not going to work their way there. They're not going to be good enough to get there, Father. They're not going to please you enough in all that they might say and think to get there, Father. The only way that you've made available is through the death on the cross of your Son and our trust in Him for that sacrifice because we knew He was God. Let that be the thought, Father, that rests in the minds and in the hearts of those who've heard the message today. And then, Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, as you promised to do, build upon that foundation. Build them up, Father, in the teaching of the Word. Build them up, Father, in the prayer of the saints and in fellowship. Build us all, Father, in the disciplines of our faith so that we might be used by you for great things. But in all those things, Father, let it be upon a foundation of Christ. For the week to come, Father, we have needs. Many of those, Father, have not been voiced here out loud, but they reside in our hearts, and you know them, as you say. I lift those up, Father. I pray that you would be our provider, that you would be our comforter. Father, that you would be the one who guides our steps and guards our hearts. Father, that you would be the one who calls us into service. And then, if it be your will, Father, I pray we'd be back here next week. Perhaps, Father, you might provide that new Christians would gather with us would bring their gifts into this body. I pray, Father, that we would be receptive and loving for them when they come and that you would clear all the obstacles in our week, Father, so that we might uh, find our own way back next week. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.